Well, for the last four or five years at Rio, we have been studying through whole books of the Bible. And, um, and I think that's been really helpful to us. Like, I think that's really become for us the best way to study through the Scriptures together. It's been very helpful to me as the guy who plans out the studies every year because the way that I used to do it is I would sit down toward the end of one year and I'd sit down with a calendar for the whole next year and I'd have to account for Easter and Mother's Day and Father's Day and Advent season and all that. And then I would come up with all of these different ideas of different series that we could do, and I'd try to fill the calendar with all of these series. So I need four weeks, I need six weeks, eight weeks, I need two weeks on something to go here and so forth. And I think that God blessed that, and He used that time, but it's less coherent than the way that we've been doing it, and I think that the Lord has really led us to do it a completely different way. And so one of the advantages of that is, you know, we're growing, I think, better spiritually through this kind of study. The only disadvantage I see to doing it this way is that when you commit to study through an entire book of the Bible, you have committed also to get up and then preach on passages of Scripture that when you open your Bible and look at them, you're pretty sure that no one has ever preached on. (laughs) Really, like, ever. Because when you look at it, you think, you know, what what do you do with this? And so that's what I thought this Monday when I sat down and I read 1 Samuel 27 and 28. I thought, oh, good grief, what am I going to do with this? And then I remembered, I remembered that last year when I mapped out this year, I realized, I didn't plan it this way, but I realized that this good grief, what do you do with this passage of Scripture, fell on the 4th of July. And I can say with great confidence that I have never been here on the 4th of July, and I wasn't planning to be this year either. So with great delight then, I took out my pen and I wrote something like, Carter Brown. (laughs) Right? Parentheses, have fun with this one. (laughs) And then in the ironic justice of God, uh, our Impact Student Ministries changed their annual missions trip from late July to now, and one of our daughters is on the trip, and since we refused to leave on vacation without her... You know, here I am, and so instead of me calling Carter, or said, yeah, on Monday and saying, hey man, what are you going to do with this? He actually called me on Monday and said, hey man, what, what are you going to do with this? Because, because here's the deal, we, we have to do something with this, don't we? Why? Because it's in the Word of God. It is in the altogether perfect, inerrant Word of God. It is there for a reason. And generally speaking, at least, all year long we've been talking about that reason. We've been seeing that it's there, just like every other story is there, to teach us something about our King and about what it means to live for Him. And so here's what I came up with. I think these two stories are here, and even in this order and paired together, to teach us that as followers of the true King who is Jesus, we are to live our lives by faith and not by fear. And I think in chapter 27, which we'll look at first, we see an example of faith in David. I think in chapter 28, I know for a fact that there we see an example of a man who is driven by a fear of everything but the Lord. He doesn't fear Him. And the question for us is, all right, well, who am I? Who are you? So we pick up our study today, 1 Samuel 27, beginning in verse 1, and we read this. It says, then David who, and I want to stop there for a minute and say, then David who, at this point in the narrative, as we learn later in this same chapter, is responsible now, not just for the 600 or so men that he's been running around for the better part of a decade, incidentally, at this point, in the wilderness with, fleeing from Saul, who every time he hears where David is, what does he do? He mounts up with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel, and he goes hunting for him. 
All right, David is not only responsible for those guys at this point, David is also responsible for his ever-increasingly large family, and he's responsible for the families of all of these guys. So now his group is likely around 3,000 people, and in that group of people, you have pregnant women, you have nursing infants, you have children of all ages, you have the elderly and the infirm, you have the sick as well as the healthy. You get the idea? It's a lot of people. And there are some very real practical ramifications to that reality for David as the leader of those people. Why? What does that mean for him? Well, it means that it is increasingly difficult for him with a crowd that large to live in the wilderness. It means that they're going to have to start moving toward places where there's more food, where there's more water, and consequently then also where there are more people. And what have we already learned about the people of Israel thus far? Well, we've learned that some of them are on David's side, And some of them are on Saul's side, like the Ziphites, who twice, when they discovered where David was located, went directly to Saul and said, hey, by the way, David, camping out in the backyard here, buy us, come get him. And what did Saul do? He mounted up and he went hunting for David with his 3,000 highly agile, highly mobile, chosen men of Israel, his special forces. And that's something to consider as well. As David is looking at this, and as he's thinking through this, he's realizing, okay, wait a minute. First of all, if we stay here in the land of Israel where Saul reigns as king and roams freely and hunts us, A, we're going to be easy to find because we're going to have to come up out of the wilderness to get enough food and water to survive, and people are going to turn us into him. And then B, once he discovers where he's at, and he mounts up with his 3,000 highly mobile, highly agile chosen men of Israel, we're sitting ducks. Pregnant women do not run fast or far. The elderly do not run fast or far. He's not with his 600 guys only like he was. It's a very real consideration. And what else have we seen about David? David is committed to not opposing Saul. He's not going to fight him. He will not lay his hand against the Lord's anointed. He has entrusted Saul completely to God and said, listen, you're going to deal with him however you're going to do it, and very importantly, whenever you're going to do it. And again, by now, it's been just about a decade. Don't you think that David would have expected God to get to it earlier than this? So he has no idea when the Lord is going to do this. Practically speaking, David and his group are sort of like the Lord and his family upon his birth. King Herod, the wicked king, was seeking to murder him, was he not? And what did they do? They were driven out of the land. They left. They went to Egypt until they got word of Herod's death, and then they returned. So it is now with David. David has realized that, practically speaking, he has no option but to leave. And that's what he does. We read again, then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. What he's saying is, if I stay here with this group... We're sitting ducks, man. We need to go. He's driven us from the land. David already forecasted that last week in his statement to Saul. He said, you're driving me out of this land. And he's been driven out. Now I know that I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul if I stay here is the point. And so here's his conclusion. He says, there is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines until the Lord removes Saul as king is the idea for then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer. He'll give up seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel and I shall escape out of his hand because as crazy as Saul is, here's what Saul is not going to do. He is not going to risk war with all of the Philistine nations by mounting up with his soldiers and going into the Philistine territory to get David. 
So David's thinking, all right, if I go to the territory of the Philistines, I'm safe from Saul, but now he has to deal with the Philistines, doesn't he? Am I going to be safe from them? Because of all the warriors of Israel, probably even including Saul, who is the most to be feared by the Philistines? It's David. David is the one who as a boy slew Goliath. As a boy, what could he do as a man? David is the one who has the, as the leader of Saul's armies for a time just wiped these guys out. So now notice where David goes and what David does because he is so brilliant. He goes to Gath, the hometown of Goliath. I mean, of all five of the Philistine cities, why that one? Because there is nowhere where his renown is greater. They all knew Goliath. And here's the guy who's the greater than Goliath, if you can imagine it. He killed him even as a boy. And he comes offering himself as a warrior. So he comes to the king of Gath and he says, listen, here's the deal. Saul is your enemy. That's established. Saul is my enemy. I mean, you may have heard over the course of the last almost decade now or so that Saul has been hunting me incessantly. Indeed, Saul has driven me and this people with me out of the land and the enemy or the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so here's how I want you to be a friend to me. I need a place that is sustainable for this group of people. I need water. I need food. I need all of this stuff. I need for you to give me a city. I need for you to give me a city in your territory that is safe from Saul. And here's how I'll be a friend to you. I and my warriors, and you know what a mighty warrior I am, well, we'll be your servants. Now, is any of that true? None of it. Not at all. Saul is not the enemy of David. Now, David is the enemy of Saul, but that's Saul's problem. That's his choice. David has shown himself again and again to be the friend of Saul. He has spared his life twice. He's begged for his soul. He's risked his own life twice to do that. I will not lay my hand against the Lord's anointed. He certainly will not fight against his own people that he himself, David, has been anointed to become the king of after Saul is removed, but by God. So that's not true, and neither is it true that he's the friend of Achish. Achish is the king of Gath. That's one of the Philistine cities. The Philistines are the inveterate enemies of, of the people of God. What is David doing? David is A, saving his own life and that of 3,000 people by deceiving this king. And David is B, through that same deception in a war that Achish is not even aware that he is in with David, taking territory from the enemy. And we've seen three times in this book already that it is okay to be deceptive if, and it's a narrow, narrow, narrow if, if by doing so you subvert the murderous intentions of another person. War is one of those areas in which deception is allowable. David is at war with Achish. And God blesses this deception because Achish gives David a city, the city of Ziklag, and not only does he give him a city, he gives him a city about 35 to 40 miles away, if they've rightly located it, from Gath. So he has a city down south, out from under the site of the king of Gath. Achish doesn't really know what David's doing. And what is David doing? David goes there and he uses it as a military base in essence, and he goes out with his men and he begins to raid the other inveterate enemies of Israel to the south, most notably and most significantly the Amalekites. Now why does it matter that he goes and begins to wipe out, and we've got to deal with that, 
That's part of the difficulty of these stories, the Amalekites. Because way back in chapter 15, where did Saul fail? Where was Saul rejected as the king by God through Samuel? It's when he failed to wipe out the Amalekites. Why did he do that? Because the Bible tells us back there, it says, for fear of his own people. For fear? Yeah. It's fear or faith. It's fear or faith. It's fear or faith. There are your options. And so David begins to do what Saul didn't do well. He begins to war against Israel's inveterate enemies. He's acting as the king of Israel. So I think that in chapter 27, you've got David acting in faith, but in chapter 28 that you now get to, you've got Saul acting in fear. Because what happens next is that all five of these Philistine kings from the five Philistine cities gather together all five of their armies, they combine their forces, and they gather for war then against Israel. And then we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 28, beginning in verse 3, where we read that now Samuel, and there's a reason that we're about to read this, Samuel was the prophet who anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel and David to eventually succeed him after God removed Saul. But even more importantly than that, at least for purposes of this story, Samuel was the guy that Saul could go to in the midst of a crisis like this one that he's right now in to get the Word of God from. But he can't do that this time. Because as we're now reminded, now Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him in what? They buried him where? Not in Endor, that's where we'll be in a minute, but in Ramah in his own city. And so in the midst of this crisis, Saul can't go to Samuel. And then it gets worse because we then read... And no one other than Saul himself had put the mediums and the necromancers, these people who specialize in consulting the dead out of the land of Israel. And why had he done that? Because he knew what the Word of God says on this, which is that to consult the dead is to be worthy of death. And he acted upon that. His own actions made him notorious throughout the land, as we'll see with the medium that he will consult in a minute, for knowing what God's Word says on this topic. It's important. He had driven them out of the land, but here's what happens. When the Philistines assembled and they came and they encamped at Shunem on one side of the Jezreel Valley... And Saul then gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. And then when Saul saw the massive army of the Philistines, he was what? Because it's the opposite of faith. He was afraid. And his heart trembled greatly. And then it got even worse, because when Saul then inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. And he did not answer him either by dreams. He didn't give him a dream or a vision or by the Urim and the Thummim or, or, or by the prophets, which is to say that Saul tried to consult with the Lord by all the legitimate means available to him at that time. And since he didn't have Samuel, and since God didn't respond to any of these legitimate means, okay, he doesn't know what God wants him to do in this particular instance. And so then Saul, as, he, as we just learned a minute ago, had put all the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. To consult with the dead is to be worthy of death. He had made that known. Obviously, he knew that. He said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire 
of her, which tells us what? Because this establishes a test. It gives us kind of a diagnostic tool, if you will, that you and I can take up and then use in our own lives to figure out, okay, look, am I living in faith or am I living in fear? And where in my life am I doing this? It tells you that when you're driven by fear, you're often driven to knowingly ignore what God says in his word. That's exactly what Saul is doing. It's so incredibly clear. And so then as you take that, you kind of change it around a little bit. You make it into the form of a question and apply it to yourself, and it reveals where you're living in faith and where you're living in fear. And all you have to do is say, all right, where am I knowingly ignoring what God says to me in His Word? And we all do it. We do it all the time. You know, we do it in, our, in the area of our finances. The Lord comes and says, worship me with your wealth, tithe and be generous to the poor and to the needy and to other causes. And all that stuff is direct, you know. And then fear, fear has its own voice, doesn't it? Fear comes and says, you know what, that's ridiculous. I mean, that sounds nice and, you know, I'm glad that makes you feel good. But this is the real world, man. And let me tell you about your identity. Let me tell you about your value as a person in the real world. Because it's not, as the Bible claims, as your faith would say, found in your status as a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. No, no, it's bought and paid for, literally. It's found in what you gain and found in what you have and found in what you can achieve and what you can accumulate and what you can pile up. And so, by the way, also is your security, fear says. Fear comes along and says, I understand that your faith says that your security is found in your supernatural God who supernaturally created and sustains this world and who still today, right now, supernaturally works within it and who promises to meet all of your needs, needs as opposed to wants. And that Raises some fear, doesn't it? And fear says, well, none of that's the case. In the real world, if you're actually going to be secure, then you need to have enough of this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And then once you get enough, fear comes back and goes, hey, you know what? I've recalculated. It's the way that it works. We do it with our sex life. We, we look at what God says about that, and it seems archaic, or at least that's how we excuse it. It's ridiculous. It certainly is in our culture. It, it must have been for another time. And, and yet, as I've said several times, most of the regret in this room has to do with that. So it's not for another time. It's for my time and yours, and, and a lot of us can bear witness to that. But, but we do it out of fear of rejection or out of fear of loneliness or out of fear of feeling foolish or out of fear what somebody else is going to think or say or feel or do. We do it with our ethics. I mean, since we were little kids, all of us, and we still do it as adults at times, have been caving into peer pressure, have we not? And we've done time and again things that we knew to be wrong. And why did we do it? Because we feared the opinions of everybody else more than we feared the opinion of the Lord. Saul here fears the Philistines. And God in judgment is not speaking to him. And so he knowingly ignores what God says to him in his word. And he says to his men, verse 7, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor, which is four and a half miles on the other side of the Philistine camp. So, you know, this is going to be a bit of an adventure. And Saul, it says, disguised himself and put on other garments. Garments in this book matter. Again and again, we've seen these stories involving garments going all the way back to Samuel who wore the linen ephod. We see David and Jonathan in that great story where Jonathan, the royal crown prince of, of Israel, disrobes, do you remember? And he gives his clothing to David. He's saying, you should be the next anointed king. And I recognize and support that. 
Saul disrobes here too. He's taking off all of the emblems of royalty. He's foreshadowing physically what will happen to him involuntarily the next day in battle. Saul disguised himself and he put on other garments and he went to Endor. He and two men with him and they came to the woman by night. And he said to her, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And now notice what she says and note who she's afraid of. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. And so then why are you laying a trap for my life to bring out my death? A witch, if you will, is preaching a sermon to Saul based on his own actions. This man is completely undone. And she's stating overtly, I am afraid of Saul. And now notice what Saul does. Saul swore to her by the Lord. As the Lord lives, he says, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So he swears by God to protect her from the law of God that he as the king anointed by God is supposed to enforce. He's shattered this fearful man who has utterly rejected God all the way through his story and only gets interested in him in a crisis. And so then the woman said, well, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And then we read that when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice and the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me for you are Saul? Now, something about this experience that she has in seeing Samuel reveals to her, it's like this aha moment that, oh, wait a minute, the guy that I've just said I most fear in this world for doing this, because to consult with the dead is to be worthy of death, and he's the one who's supposed to execute that judgment, is also the very guy who's asked me to call this guy up. And so she screams in fear, I think, of the realization that the one who's standing there is Saul himself, the one who said that he would put her to death for this kind of activity. And so she says, you are Saul. Why have you deceived me? And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God. And the word, I think, would be far better translated, I see a heavenly being. I see a spirit. It's very clear this is not a physical resurrection. And the narrator of the story, at the beginning of the story, reminded you of where Samuel's body lay. Did he not? It's Ramah. It's not Endor. So it's not a resurrection in that sense. She sees the spirit, I think, of Samuel coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? You see, because Saul can't see him. But as we'll see in a second, Saul can hear him. And she can't hear him. So it's interesting. What do you see? I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he says, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. Now, clothing matters. Why does that matter? Well, because that's the emblem of the prophet. But more than that, that takes us back to chapter 15. It takes us back to the rejection of Saul by God through Samuel as a result of Saul's failure to wipe out the Amalekites. Because after 
Samuel issues that edict of rejection, what did Saul do? He grabbed Samuel's robe and Samuel was turning to leave and it tore. And what did Samuel say? So also God has tore the kingdom away from you and has given him to your neighbor who is better than you. Now, why is he better? Because he's smarter, because he's brighter, because he's more obedient, because he has faith. It's all about faith. Saul has fear. It's a reminder of that. And then when Saul heard that description, it says that he knew that it was in fact Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. And people disagree on this. I think it actually was Samuel. And in saying that, I don't mean in any way, shape, or form to legitimize this kind of activity again to consult with the dead. Okay, is to be worthy of death. So I think we're pretty clear on what the Lord thinks about this. And neither am I saying that I think that these people actually have the ability to do this stuff. I think that God seizes upon this very unique opportunity in Saul's wickedness to turn Saul's wickedness upon his own head by allowing Samuel one last time to pronounce an oracle of doom upon Saul. And that's exactly what's coming. And I think that it's Samuel because the, the, the witch of Endor just sees him, but Saul, who is not a medium, hears him. And he recognizes his voice, and not only that, then what Samuel says, which we're going to read now, comes to pass exactly the way that he said it would come to pass, which is the biblical mark of the true prophet. So Samuel says this, it says, then Samuel said to Saul, this is verse 15, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, because I'm freaking out, man. I'm in great distress. I'm driven by fear. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God in judgment has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams or nothing else. And therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, well, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? That too is uncomfortable. You know, I mean, in chapter 27, you have David. If you did your personal worship this week, wiping out men, women, and children, he is not leaving any living person behind in any village that he raids. How do you feel about that? Gives you the warm fuzzies, doesn't it? Oh, wow, that feels great, Tom, right on. Here we get to this, and Saul, guess what? The Lord is your enemy. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable, I think, when we look at this idea about God's judgment and God's justice and God's wrath. We don't like to talk about any of that. Tell me about God's grace, but the two are connected. Speak to me about God's love. Okay, well, but you can't separate that from the cross. The reality is that this is uncomfortable for us. It's unthinkable for us. We can't imagine this. We don't have a category for it because we don't have the eyes of the Lord. We don't look at sin the way that He looks at sin. We don't understand a judgment as we really deserve it. And what it ought to do is to drive us to Jesus, to drive us to the cross and to the one that received the full weight of the judgment for everyone who comes to the Him and puts their faith and trust in Him that they might not be, in the end, the enemy of God. But Samuel says to Saul, you know, why do you ask me since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord 
has done to you as he spoke by me way back in chapter 15, for the Lord has torn, you hear the word, the kingdom out of your hand, just like you tore my robe with your hand back then is the idea, and has given it to your neighbor David, because for fear of the people, you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against who? Amalek. There it is. The way that David and faith has been doing ever since you foolishly drove him from the land. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. And he doesn't mean shall be with me in heaven. He means shall be in the grave with me, shall be dead like me. For tomorrow the Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And then Saul fell at once full length on the ground on this eve of his death, filled with what? Because here it is, not filled with faith. Filled with fear. Because of the words of Samuel. Or really, because of the words of the Lord. And you say, man, that is the weirdest Bible story that I've ever heard. And I know that. That's why I wanted to be gone. That and the fact that it was 60 degrees up there with no bugs this morning. But what do you do with it? Because you better do something. It's in God's Word. It's here to teach us something about our King who is Jesus. About how to live for Him. I think what you need to do is, is to recognize that at the very least, and I think it teaches far more than this, but at the least it teaches us that as followers of the true King, who is Jesus, we're called to live our lives by faith and not by fear. And that starts, incidentally, with the fear of the Lord, of His justice, of His judgment, of His holiness, of His awesome wisdom, and a humbling of ourselves before Him in repentance and faith in Christ in the One who makes us friends with God. It begins there, and then, it's, then it continues by you and I just having honest moments with the Lord in which we say, okay, all right, here's the litmus test, the diagnostic tool. Where in my life am I knowingly ignoring God's Word? Because in that place, I'm not living in faith. And you'll find as you analyze it that most often the reason you're doing it is something related to fear. So I want to challenge you to do that. Where in your life are you knowingly ignoring what God says to you in His Word? Bring that to Him in faith and release your fear. Let's pray. Father, we do praise You, um, Lord, for Your Word, which is holy and which is perfect. God, we thank You for uh, the fun stories and the difficult ones. Lord, we thank You that You do not mince words, that You do not hide the truth from us, for that would be of no help. But instead, You reveal to us things that Truly, it takes your Spirit's work in our hearts and minds for us to A, comprehend, and B, to, compre you know, to, to receive and, and to act on. And I pray, Lord, that, that in this moment, in this day, you will do that. That you would help us to develop a right fear of you. And 
through faith in Christ, that you would make us to be your friends and make us to be your children. And then God, work that out through the various areas of our lives. Help us to realize that our identity is in you, that our value is in you, that our security is in you, that indeed everything that we're looking for in everything else we find in you. Release us, God, fear by fear, and let us grow faith by faith in you. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.